Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, hello, and welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio. I'm Shannon Riley. I am a Shakespeare fan, and I get to talk about Shakespeare every Sunday on the 8th with all of you wonderful listeners. I've gotten quite a few comments lately about the, the last couple of episodes, which I really appreciate. Love to hear from people. If you want to reach out to me, I'd love to hear from you at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. I am not a Shakespeare scholar. I am just a Shakespeare devotee. I happen to love every one of his plays. Well, some more than others. And today, we're going to be talking about my particular favorite, or one of my favorites. It's in the top two. It's either this or The Tempest. But we're going to talk about Macbeth, Shakespeare's scary, booky, ghost and witches drama. It's so wonderful. I'm going to I'm going to not use my normal renaissance music underneath uh, today's program. No, I want something spookier, maybe some witches and uh, a little thunder and lightning. So I'm really excited about this show. First of all, one of the things about Macbeth that makes it stand out is not only is it one of the most read and performed of his works, it is one we can truly date. We believe pretty strongly that it was written in 1605 or 1606, and being able to date this play helps a lot in terms of where Shakespeare was and where the rest of his works might lay out, because he makes reference to works in his own writing. As a matter of fact, in Macbeth, he references Antony and Cleopatra, which is the next play he's going to be writing. So there is some great references in this play. Now, how we're able to date it to that date is because of a political intrigue that was going on in England at the time. And that's the famous gunpowder plot. This was a case where Catholics were getting fed up with King James I. He was supposed to be that king who unified the country, brought everybody together. He was going to be a king for everybody, Protestants and Catholics alike. Yet he made no steps to try to normalize relationships with Catholics and made no steps to allow them to come out of the darkness where they were living in England. So some of the Catholics decided to get rid of him and most of Parliament. So they stacked barrels and barrels of gunpowder underneath Parliament, planning to blow it up when they were in session with the king present. It gets discovered. A man by the name of Guy Fox is found guarding it down in the basement and several Catholics are rounded up. Now, References to the gunpowder plot are inside Macbeth, and they're very special messages to the king himself 
from William Shakespeare. Now keep in mind, Shakespeare is now a member of the Kingsmen. That means his royal patronage goes all the way to the crown. He's a gentleman now. And when he writes Macbeth, he's writing to the most powerful man in his world. And he's got messages for him, but he's also going to play a game of political correctness with him. And I'm going to talk about that because this play is filled with contradictions. And it's wonderful. It's really, really a wonderful, wonderful play. And there's some great quotes in this play. But we're going to be talking about those quotes now. So allow my boy to introduce those quotes. And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. Now I'm going to start off with a quote called, Fair is foul and foul is fair. The witches say this in Act 1, Scene 1. And this is why we're able to reference the gunpowder plot. That phrase, fair is foul and foul is fair, was also a phrase kind of uttered by a leading Protestant minister at the time in one of his sermons referring to the gunpowder plot, saying that the people who tried to pull off this heinous crime, whether they thought they were fair or thought they were foul, they will answer to their God. Shakespeare must have heard that this sermon. He uses it right away at the very, very top of the play. He is calling out the time in which he's living in. Remember my golden rule. My golden rule is it's important to keep in context when Shakespeare wrote these plays. And we get a clear idea on this one when he was writing it and why he was writing it. He was writing to his new Scottish king, King James I. King James I was King James VI of Scotland, remember? His mother was Mary Queen of Scots, a Catholic who was put to death by Queen Elizabeth. He succeeds Elizabeth on the throne, and everybody had fear and apprehension about what he might do. And what he did was nothing. He just rolled along exactly as Elizabeth had led her life. And as a result, some people were fed up while others were relieved. Now, I'm not getting off hand, and I, I, I can do that so quickly on this play. So I'm going to go back to more quotes that I really think you need to listen to. Here's a quote that's in Macbeth. Macbeth himself says it in Act 1, Scene 3 that could be a line directly shot at King James. And it is this line, If chance will have me king, by chance may crown me. He was crowned by chance. There was no legitimate, easy way to get a successor in for Elizabeth. She had no immediate family left. She had no children. And here we have a man who has nothing to do with England. There was a good chance he would have been passed over, but he wasn't, and he became the king of England. But then there's some great quotes that really exhibit how vicious Lady Macbeth is in this play. And this is a little bit long. I don't normally do one this long, but I love this quote. I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the baby that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from its boneless gums and dashed its brains out had I so sworn as you have done to this. Here she is damning her husband because he's not brave enough to go forward with their plan. He wants to back off, but instead, she humiliates him and tells him it's time to act. There is a ruthlessness to Lady Macbeth. A couple more quotes before I move on. There are daggers in men's smiles. That's Donald Bain, Act 2, Scene 3. One of my favorite quotes today is Lady Macbeth's quotes, Glams thou art, and Cowdor, and shan't be what thou art promised, yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. The milk of human kindness. Of course, there's her other very famous quote, Out, damn spot, out, I say. Lady Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 1. But the most famous quote of Macbeth is this one. It's from Act 5, Scene 5, very end of the play. Life's but a walking shadow, 
or poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a talk told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Oh, we got a great play to talk about, so I'm really excited that we're going to do that. So I'm going to go through the synopsis of the play, just to make sure everybody's familiar with what's going on in the story. As I go through this, I want to talk about what Shakespeare does to this play, how he changes the original story and makes it better. Ah, so, buckle up, here we go. Now, first of all, the story of Macbeth is old, very old. Shakespeare writes his play in 1605. The story itself is based on a king who lived in 1025. So, he's hundreds of years away from the original tale. But it is based on a real person that really was a Macbeth. But more importantly for our story, there really was a Banquo. And that Banquo is why Shakespeare writes this play for this king. So, as I go through this synopsis, I'm going to talk about the things that are true and different. But one thing you have to remember, though, is the tale of Macbeth, though it goes back to 1025, it was never written down until somewhere in the 1200. It was traded on story after story through an oral tradition. So the real Macbeth, we may never really know that much about, but we do know a few things. And the tale that was told about Macbeth that ended up in the Chronicles that Shakespeare took a lot of his stories from, particularly about historical figures, was a very ambitious and scary tale because it dealt with three things that were very big on Elizabethan minds. One was a usurper taking the throne, fear that people had, and what would happen if they questioned the king, replaced the king incorrectly, and put a usurper on the throne. The second big fear that they had, and this is going to sound funny to say this, but witches. Elizabethans believed in witches wholeheartedly, and the story of Macbeth is filled with them. And the third thing that was a very big and most important point to the Elizabethan audiences was the relationship between Scotland and England, which up until their first Scottish king was incredibly combative. And how that plays out through the king's reign is part of this story as well. So let's get on with the synopsis because there's a lot to talk about with this play that I really want to do. First of all, at the top of the play, there's been an invasion into Scotland by Norway. This is based on a true story that Norway did indeed invade Scotland way back in 1025. King Duncan, who's king of the Scots, really lets his warlords fight it out for him. And so Macbeth is one of those warlords. However, what he doesn't know is that one of his thanes, and you hear this word thane a lot, I used to think Thane was simply a Scottish way of saying Lord or Duke or something like that. It's less than that. A Thane is kind of like a, a civil servant that runs a certain area of the kingdom or is in charge of a certain area. It would kind of be like a city councilman. The real Macbeth was far above a Thane. The real Macbeth was a warlord and he commanded huge respect and huge armies. But in any case, another Thane, the Thane of Cordor, had sided with the rebellious factions and with the invading army, and it was Macbeth who took out this thane and killed him. As the king is told this, he says, go, find Macbeth, and pronounce him the new thane of Cordor. Add that to his title. So, off a rider goes. In the meantime, Macbeth, having just finished his part of the fight, not aware of whether or not they've won the whole war or not, is walking along with his lieutenant, Banquo, and they come upon three weird sisters. The three weird sisters tell him that he will, he who is Thane of Gloms, will also be Thane of Cawdor and will be king hereafter. 
They tell Banquo, you will never be king, but your children will be king. This is unbelievable. He doesn't believe any of this is possible or true until upon him come messengers from the king who pronounce him as Thane of Cawdor. The first prophecy comes true. He comes upon the king who tells him, I will spend the night in your castle. Go ahead of me and prepare your home for a visit from your king. So Macbeth runs off to his home at Dunsinane. Now, when he returns to his castle, he almost immediately tells his wife of the weird sisters and their proclamation, and Lady Macbeth immediately starts to plot. She says, why should we wait for fortune to make you king? Let's make you king today. You're already Thane of Gloms. You're already Thane of Cordor. Let's make you king today. So she proposes that they drug the wine that guard the king, and in the night, they go on and kill Duncan. Now Macbeth says, let's slow down a bit here. I don't want to do this, but his wife is insistent. And that night, this is exactly what they do. Lady Macbeth assures him that he has to have the strength to take the dagger before him and finish the job. Well, he does. When the king is found dead the next morning, Duncan's sons, Malcolm and Donald Bane, flee, fearing for their own lives that they will be next. When they do this, Macbeth is very quick to demand that they be found, for they must have been behind the assassination of their father. By the way, the guards who were guarding Duncan, they're also slain. But that's, they're slain by Macbeth, who comes in and says he was so enraged when he found the king dead, he took the daggers and immediately attacked the guards and killed them, so they can't explain why they were unconscious. In Act 3, Macbeth becomes king of Scotland, but he's plagued by feelings of insecurity. He remembers a prophecy that Banquo's descendants will inherit the throne, but it won't be him. Banquo, and the next day with his son Fleans, decide to get the heck out of Dodge, and they leave. When Macbeth finds out that they've left, he immediately sends assassins after them. He says, kill Banquo and kill Fleans. Banquo, up till now, was his best friend. Banquo was also there when the prophecies were made. He knows that Macbeth probably was spurred on by those prophecies to kill the king. So, he worries that Banquo must immediately be killed. But he's starting to unravel, and Lady Macbeth tries to get him to relax and calm him. That night at the banquet, there is a ghost of Banquo at the table who toasts him. No one sees the ghost but Macbeth. Lady Macbeth sends everybody to bed and tries to settle her husband down. The assassins did catch up with Banquo. They did kill Banquo, but Fleance got away. And we're going to find out what happened to Fleans and everybody else in the play after this short break. And then I want to talk about what really the story of Macbeth was. It's an exciting tale. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with part two of Shannon's Shakespeare Sunday and a look at Macbeth. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Hello, 
and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday. Today we're talking about Macbeth, and I had gotten up to the synopsis through Act 3. We're going to do the last two acts here real quickly, and then I want to talk about this really magnificent play. Once again, I'm Shannon Riley. I'd love to hear from any of you out there. If you want to reach me at ShannonJRiley.com, you can email me there at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com, and I'd love to talk to you. So please let me know what you think of the show. The other thing that I want to talk about real quickly is that the arts are opening back up all over the country right now. Please, please, please go out and support them. We've been dark and quiet for a long time, and we need your support. So please, if there's anything in your community that you really love, dance, theater, music, photography, please go out and support any art form you can. We really need your help. All right, so here we go. Act four of Macbeth. Now, Macbeth is freaking out by this point. He's very scared. He knows that Fleance has gotten away. And there are people who are questioning whether or not he is actually innocent in the death of his king. So Macbeth seeks out the witches to ask him if they have anything else that they can tell him about the future. They tell him that he doesn't need to worry. He will be safe until Burnham Wood, that meaning the forest near his castle, marches against him. And secondly, they said he'd not fear any man born of women. Well, this prophecy seems to make him invincible. He can't be beaten by anybody. But they also prophesied that the Scottish succession will come from Banquo's son, not Macbeth. Macbeth is furious, and he embarks on this reign of terror, slaughtering many, including Macduff's family. Macduff and Malcolm and everybody else who might possibly stand in his way or question his leadership must be killed. So let me explain who Macduff is. Macduff is another very powerful warlord. And he has gone to seek out Malcolm, one of Duncan's sons, and try to get him to come back. He wants to put him back in as king. But Malcolm has run to the English court, and he has begged for support from the English, and they are raising an army to march against Macbeth. Macduff then learns that Macbeth's entire forces had landed on his home, killed his children, and killed his wife. Macduff wants revenge. So Macduff begs Malcolm, raise your army and march against Macbeth, and I will join you. In Act 5, Macbeth is feeling safe. He's in a remote castle in Dunsinay. He's right next to Burnham Wood. He can see anything that's coming his way. He'll be fine. But it's Lady Macbeth who is unraveling. She is having visions. She is wandering around the castle, sleepwalking and speaking out loud. She tries to wash her hands, but the bloodstains won't come off. She eventually goes so mad, she commits suicide. When Macbeth hears that his wife has died, he is riddled with guilt. He feels terrible. He can't believe she's gone, but he decides he must move on. He must fight to the death. He must save his life and his rule. The battle then suddenly commences. What happens is one of the guards comes to Macbeth and says, I don't know how to tell you this, but the woods are moving towards the castle. Macbeth quickly runs up to the battlements and sees the combined forces of Macduff and Malcolm have cut down branches and have used them as a sort of camouflage to move and creep slowly up on Dunsinay Castle. Macbeth immediately recognizes one of the prophecies, but he remembers he cannot be harmed by any man born of woman, so surely he's going to be fine. Well, the fight commences, and there is a huge battle, and Macduff comes upon Macbeth. They lay into each other, fighting viciously and hard. When Macbeth finally tells them, you are wasting your time, I cannot be harmed by any man born of woman. That's when Macbeth tells him, I wasn't born a woman. I was delivered by Caesarian. I never 
came in the natural world. Macbeth flies at him out of rage, and he is immediately slain. Macduff triumphs and brings the head of the traitor Macbeth to Malcolm, and Malcolm declares peace and goes to Scone to be crowned king. And that's the end of the Shakespeare's Macbeth. So let's talk about how it relates to the real Macbeth and the story. Now, first of all, this is a well-known story at the time, but it had a couple of things in it that might cause a problem for the English king. And one of them was Banquo. Banquo, in the original tale, was part of the assassination of Duncan. Shakespeare eliminates this, but here's the real story of this Macbeth. The real Macbeth, who was a warlord and who did work alongside King Duncan, grew tired of King Duncan's inability to raise forces on his own or to maintain control of his kingdom. He felt he was ineffectual and a worthless leader, and many other warriors agreed. So, Duncan, who was killed in Shakespeare's play in Macbeth's castle, was not killed in Macbeth's castle, was actually killed on the road to Inverness, and he was killed by forces led by Macbeth and Banquo. They usurped a king. This is a massive crime, but to the Scots it's different. To the Scots, as long as you could trace your lineage back through to one of the kings, you were as likely to be a king as anybody else, and Macbeth could. Not only does Macbeth kill Duncan, but he also ends up marrying a woman who is actually Duncan's aunt and the widow of another man that Macbeth had killed. He marries her, however, because she has a legitimate claim to the throne. And through her, he can maintain his control. And the real Macbeth does. He rules for 17 years, which is a long time in any ruling monarchy. Particularly since most of the time, in order to stay ruler, you had to fight. Macbeth's time as king was also a time of great prosperity for Scotland. They had a great period of peace, crops came in well, everything was attributed through the majesty of God gracing this particular king to you. So if the weather stayed nice, if the crops came in, it was because you picked the right king. And he reigned happily and healthily for 17 years. But there was a son of Duncan's, and that son was Malcolm. And Malcolm did unite with the English and did want the throne back. And he raised many more forces than Macbeth could fight against. As Macbeth got older, he had less and less control over the men around him. And the idea of Macbeth joining with much superior English forces led to Macbeth, the real Macbeth, hiding out in a castle on the edge of society trying to protect himself much like the Macbeth of the story. And when Malcolm's troops came for him, he lost that battle, but he didn't die. He ran to the Scottish Highlands, where he lived for another two to three years, they believe. And at that time, Scotland typically had two kings, a king of South Scotland and a king of North Scotland. Malcolm waited a few years, he bided his time, and then he moved in, found Macbeth somewhere in the Highlands, and finished him off. That's the real Macbeth, but it's Banquo that I want to talk about. You see, Banquo was a direct ancestor of a man by the name of King James I of England. If he was part of this usurper crowd, this Kingslayer, as it was with Duncan, then anyone who followed after him is illegitimate. Shakespeare removes Banquo's sin. He takes him completely out of the plot for the murder of Duncan. Not only that, he turns him out to be an honest and innocent man who flees with his son and dies protecting his son. The 
also makes it part of the prophecy from the Three Weird Sisters that Banquo's line will be the legitimate reigning power in England and Scotland. And who should that be but King James? Fears about who should be ruling in England were very, very strong, even throughout James's reign. You had the growing concern of the Puritans, who were slowly moving in and saying, why do we need a king at all? We'll just follow the Bible. You had a growing concern of Scotland and how its power might be somehow shifted to outshine England. Shakespeare is writing a love letter to the king. He's saying, not only have I removed this stain on the history of your family, I have also been able to raise you up as the legitimate and rightful king, for it was prophecy. It's, it's a brilliant move. But it's also a very unique story to pick for this king, because this king wrote the book on how to identify and torture and kill witches. Witchcraft was a very serious concern. And in Elizabeth's time, there were a few witch trials and a few people put to death over it. They were hung, by the way, not burned. Elizabeth had no time for this. She found it to be silly superstition. Scotland, that had serious witch trials and serious burning of witches. In fact, the king himself, King James VI of Scotland, who became King James I of England, was very famous for a witch trial. He went to Denmark and married his beautiful wife, brought her back when a huge storm erupted at sea and the ship almost sunk. He blamed it on an act of witches who tried to kill him and his new bride on their return to Scotland. And he found some. He tortured them until they admitted that they had a signed a pact with the devil and that they indeed tried to bring his boat down. And then he had them killed. James believed wholeheartedly in witches. And you can see this, this magic, this tempest that is raised by magic and how it affects his boat is something that Shakespeare will return to later in The Tempest. There is so much that is happening in James's rule that now being a part of that royal crowd, Shakespeare is seen and incorporating into his work and incorporating these witches into the tale of Macbeth is important. Now, there were three weird sisters in the original tale too. There were prophecies in the original tale too. I'm not saying Shakespeare invented that, but he did do something very unique with those witches. And it relates to the idea of why today we think the title Macbeth is cursed. Actors aren't supposed to say Macbeth inside a theater. I'm recording this at home right now so I can say it all I want. I'm not recording it at the theater. But if I were in the theater, I'd have to refer to it as a Scottish play. That is, if I were superstitious and I'm not. In any case, it's considered cursed. Where that idea came from is in Shakespeare's writing. He doesn't just have these ladies do prophecies. He has them casting spells, and he writes amazing spells. Boy, oh boy, oh toil and trouble. Eye of Newt, skin of frog. All of this wonderful imagery, poetic imagery that he uses in writing these spells. And it opens the play with these three ladies casting these spells. By doing so, he freaked out his audience. They genuinely believed in witches, and these actors dressed as women on stage casting these spells scared the bejeebas out of these people. They really believed it could possibly be true. 
that these actors could be witches themselves. From its very inception, it's been considered as cursed play. And as a result, actors being actors, they always make it worse than it really has to be. And as time goes by, now you can't even say the name inside a theater. You have to refer to it as a Scottish play. But the use of witches by Shakespeare is a great way to get James I's attention. It's a genuine concern he has. And then the final thing that is remarkable about this play is talking about the usurpation of a king killer, that king slayer, Macbeth, taken out and removed. He's removed by Macduff, another real genuine historic person. Shakespeare is able to weave this history together so well that it was really thought to be true. The true story of Macbeth. And if it's a true story of Macbeth, the witches are true. Political intrigue like the gunpowder plot meant that this country was divided. It was on the brink. It could lead to civil war, and indeed civil war does come, but not until long after Shakespeare's dead. But the fear of the country falling apart, the fear of the country being divided, was so potent in Shakespeare's time that he could not risk it ever happening. If you have not seen Macbeth, do yourself a favor, because my, my short synopsis does not do it justice. It is a brilliant, scary, wonderful, provocative play, and one of Shakespeare's finest. Speaking of one of Shakespeare's finest, I did a terrible thing. I forgot to do one of Shakespeare's plays that would have been written before this one, so I'm going to go out of order. I got to go back now, because I missed a really good one, and I can't believe I missed it, but I missed Othello. So next week, we're going to go backwards, and we're going to pick up Othello, and then I'll move forward to Antony and Cleopatra. Thank you all for listening to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday. I hope you had a good time, and I'll see you next week. Until then, keep it barred to the bone.